people want to feel like you care about them. They want to know that you're looking out for them and they're, they're feeling okay. And so for me, in the times that we're living in right now, not everyone's okay. Um, we're just as much living at work right now as we are working from home. That has, by necessity, demanded that we're authentic with one another. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Stacy Feld had settled into a satisfying career in biotech business development when she accidentally found her way into a meeting with Genentech's CEO and a tiny startup called 23andMe. The moment sparked a sudden realization that the best life science innovation would be focused around the consumer. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Sunin. We're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. So, David... Yes, Lisa. So for years, I have thought and believed yes. and pretty much been validated so far that consumers would never spend money directly on healthcare out of their own pockets, except by force. But suddenly we're seeing signs that this may be changing a little bit. We're seeing companies like Kim's Hers being paid for by consumers and growing every day, talk space. Do you think consumers are changing their position on purchasing medical products and services or is it just a moment in time? Uh, it's interesting how um, a lot of it in the context of COVID testing, I think a lot of people have gotten a lot more comfortable around that, right? Mm -hmm. um, yesterday, I think actually uh, one of my you know kids and I went to local school and a company that had you know basically set up in a van, not down by the river, but um, <laughs> <laughs> we were in a van. Anyway, but as people get used to it and some of the other companies that are doing this are companies you know, that were set up for consumer testing and then they sort of pivoted to test for COVID. So perhaps as people get more comfortable with the test, more comfortable with the approaches, it'll become more acceptable. And certainly I think it may depend on the state. I think Arizona, for example, right, has rules that allow you to just sort of go and kind of get like, cheap. I remember writing about this for Forbes where they have, you know, you can go and get like cheap lab test places. You can do that in California now too, actually. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We should be able to do that without a prescription, without anything. I just want to sort of get this tested. And to the extent that that's allowed, that's, mm. uh, that's good. I like how, for example, for LabCorp, even when you get numbers back now, they show up, um, you know, directly from LabCorp and they show up um, on your iPhone, you yeah. know, on, on your Apple Health. So that's good well, too. Well, somebody who has long believed that consumers are engaged or will engage in healthcare is, is Stacey Feld. So thank you so much for being with us today, Stacey. Thank you for having me. I'm so delighted to be a part of the conversation that that you both have been driving the last couple of years. It's really, it's quite a privilege to be talking. We're so you. psyched to have you, Stacey. Absolutely. So my, my favorite story, I'm going to cut to the middle, is um, <laughs> the one you told me about, um, for all intents and purposes, that you had a lightning strike of recognition when in, in a meeting with 23andMe and Genentech. Can you tell us about that story? Yeah, so I guess it requires a little bit of context, as I feel like better understanding yep. of everything often does. So I've I've been at the the intersection of life sciences and consumer, spending about the first half of my career, 10, 11, 12 years in traditional healthcare and, and biotech, and then the the back half 
10 or 12 years in the intersection of, of where healthcare and consumer health are, are becoming um, convergent. And I guess right at that intersection point, um, I was in the business development group at Genentech and have been in the, in the Bay Area for all of my career and kept up a lot of important relationships with, with people and had been uh, focused on diagnostic uh, partnerships and looking at biomarker discovery and technologies to enable commercialization of diagnostics. And one day got a call from someone that I know you both know uh, well, who I had gotten to know years before in a prior life at a diagnostics company, Linda Avey. And she said she was going to be on the Genentech campus and would I like to meet for breakfast, which is something that we had done over the years. And so we met for breakfast. She showed up with uh, a, a new partner that she had introduced me to, Anne Wojcicki, and they explained to me that they were uh, sketching out a business plan for an idea to genotype people and share their information uh, with people so they could own their own data and develop a new model for healthcare innovation. And I had my head in a lot of different diagnostic opportunities and um, said, okay, well, great, let's stay in touch. Let's see how that goes. And uh, asked them if I could help them find their next meeting. They had shared that they were headed up to the fifth floor, which is where my office was in the business development suite. And I took them up the elevator, bid farewell, noticed that uh, Art Levinson, who was the CEO of Genentech at the time, his admin was waiting for them and took them to their next meeting. And I said, oh, I guess they're meeting with Art. Um, about 20 seconds later, Art was standing in my office, uh, who clearly uh, found out that I knew um, Linda. And long story short, uh, asked me to join the meeting which was um, in the executive conference room at Genentech with a number of R&D uh, VPs and, and other um, Genentech luminaries. Uh, and that later set out in motion a investment that Genentech made in a very, very small equity vehicle in the Series A of 23andMe that, that I um, co-led with a colleague. And you mentioned that it was, you know, somewhat of a signpost in my career, uh, you know, Genentech being a pioneer in the biotherapeutic space for areas of high unmet need. It was at the time a little bit of a head scratcher of, you know, what, where's Genentech's dog in the fight around uh, a revolution in the consumer health space. And it was just something that I really held on to for um, a number of years and, you know, being a part of the conversation of how life science tools were going to enable new solutions for consumers. And it later, later led to me um, kind of in that crossroads of moving from traditional healthcare to the consumer health space. That's a great story. So now I'm going to back up to your earlier life because I know you were interested in consumer sentiment all the way back to your upbringing in very rural New Hampshire, where you your parents had fled from New York. And um, they ultimately were entrepreneurial and opened up their own video rental store. And you said that you would look at what people had rented to, you know, understand consumer sentiment back in your community, right? <laughs> so indeed, I, I grew up in a tiny little town about 
one-tenth of the size of Genentech uh, at the time <laughs> that I, I was there, less than less than a thousand people in my little town. And uh, my parents did own uh, a video store right after the beta VHS, um, uh, I guess, battle happened and, and VHS won out. This was obviously well before Blockbuster and Netflix and all the, the technologies that have since disrupted. And it was my first job working in my parents' video store, my first, uh, my first experience with um, kind of being entrepreneurial and taking a risk. And uh, you get to know people real well in your small little town and <laughs> how many times they rent Terminator 2 and other unmentionable rental movies. <laughs> we, we often bartered movie rentals for maple syrup as well. Wow. In a small New Hampshire town. That's awesome. So you said your college plan was to get out of New Hampshire and you actually did. And you went to Penn uh, in, in Philadelphia. The experience must have been quite a shock to the system, having always been pretty sheltered as a child. Yeah, it was it was a shock in some ways. And it was also a, an awakening in a lot of ways. I, I as you mentioned, my parents uh, left New York in a bit of a in a bit of a hurry. Um, they were second generation New Yorkers. Their parents were New Yorkers and found their way to this said small town in New Hampshire. And I had grandparents and cousins that I went to visit in in the big city. Um, my cousins were were both Penn. Um, I was about to say a lot of people from New York um, <laughs> wind up. I mean, it couldn't be the only. Uh, yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it, so that was part of the inspiration. And I, I wouldn't say that I was sheltered, but I, I had a sense of mysteriousness about um, the big city. And so I, I think where it was an awakening for me was we were the only Jewish family in this teeny tiny town of, of New Hampshire and going to a school like Penn Less was true. definitely a, a, an awakening of, you know, people that are, um, you know, that are, that form a community based on their, their cultural identity, their religious identity, which I just didn't have the opportunity to have. And in some ways, um, you know, kept that under wraps for, for, um, you know, fear of standing out or possibly even worse. Um, and so Penn was, you know, my, my first Jewish boyfriend and first time really celebrating um, the high holy days with, with friends and really, like I said, like kind of an, an reawakening of, of That's my so interesting because people often have the opposite experience at college where they're like stuck doing things at home they feel and then they go to college and become super secular. But it sounds like you were like pre-secularized, um, though just... Honestly, I can't imagine you were able to hide it all that well from people. Um, <laughs> you, you and me both, I'm sure, would be equally successful at that, and Lisa, for that matter. Um, but um, uh, So that's really kind of like a reverse yeah. of, of, a, of a familiar journey. The, the, the shocking part of Lisa's question was, you know, the urban jungle part. And, and West Philadelphia has become oh. much, much more civilized back in the the early to mid nineties, it was a bit of a different place. And, you know, within two or three weeks of be becoming a freshman, my bike was stolen. My freshman year roommate was held up at gunpoint outside of our place. I mean, th there was some real 
awakenings, not necessarily in the positive sense that I that I had to get used to. But I mean, it's all all part of that that transition, which could, which that could explain college. your interest in criminal justice and why you went to law school <laughs> at Vanderbilt. Um, a lot of people who know you probably don't even know you're a lawyer um, that you went, in fact, to law school. And, and I had forgotten about that. Actually. Yeah. And ended up um, in the late 90s, kind of the high tech boom time at Wilson Sonsini um, working in that law firm, a, a leading Silicon Valley firm in that in that time. How did you get from there to biotech? Yeah, well, Wilson was was really the ignition. Um, it was really the fuel to um, to to jump into um, healthcare innovation. I represent. I was part of a practice at the time that was the the licensing group. This is the group that um, Ken Clark has long uh, led at, at Wilson Sonsini. Um, now, I think referred to as the Tech Transactions Group, and it really does sit at the intersection of. Um, technology and health. Uh, and I found uh, drafting patent licenses and helping small biotech and diagnostic and, and de device companies far more interesting than software and hardware work, even though at the time that I was there, um, there was the, the beginning of the dot-com boom going on. But I was much more interested in some of the foundational IP that gives rise to new company formation and really the value that can be created from small and large company partnerships. So I was, I was happy to get on the healthcare path by, by way of um, the legal work that I was doing and really never looked back. So went in-house to a client um, in the diagnostic space just after the Human Genome Project was, was finished. That dates, dates me a bit. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, I've been sort of in, in the healthcare space um, with, a, with a turn and an intersection in consumer health. I think it's so interesting, like even like your career, how you've, I wonder if like getting used to growing up in like New Hampshire, you had sort of more um, willingness, more freedom to sort of travel to different places, whether from law school at Vanderbilt. I, I you know, I, I just don't see a lot of people from Penn, necessarily, you know, like from New York and Penn necessarily winding up at Vanderbilt and then, you know, a job in, you know, in, in, um, in Madison. I just feel like you were more open to opportunities than some people might. So I think that's sort of been how you've approached so much of your career in general. I think that... I think the openness and the curiosity that I had was certainly a, a, a part of it. I also think that a, a lot of the decisions that I've made um, have been built on relationships that I've formed and and trust that I've I've built with people and just what's what's inspired them and and how that that impacts the the decisions that I've made to make decisions to to you know make changes along the way. So yeah, there's not there's not really a, a very clear path of of New Hampshire. Philadelphia, New York, Nashville, San Francisco, but it, it is a puzzle Madison. that fits together. It's Madison in, in, in my head. <laughs> Actually, you said that was your first work from home experience because you're still in California, but you were traveling back and forth somewhat to Madison, really working from home. So what was the difference between working at home then and working at home now, besides <laughs> having a child? <laughs> yeah, that's a big, that was a big one. I was a, um, I was a, a single woman back then um, and had uh, had a, a dedicated place for, for me to work. Yeah. Um, I guess because I knew that it was 
that was the framework. You know, I, I wasn't wondering as we all were in March and April of this year, like, mm -hmm. when is this going to end? Um, are we going to be done in June? Are we going to be done in September? And, you know, now I think we have a, a better idea of how long we're, we're in for it. Um, and I, I, I could just plan my day a little bit better. Um, but it, 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 it does take a certain level of, of discipline, I think, to be able to work at home and build in time to take a walk outside and build in time to, to work out. I think, the, I think the uncertainty of this period has made it quite difficult. And then obviously yeah. for people that are caretaking and have kids and managing all the other plates that are spinning up in the air, it's obviously <clears throat> more challenging. So Third Wave was a gene expression company. Um, you went from there to Genentech and led business development activities or, or managed basic development activities that focused on collaborating with small immunology and autoimmune biomarker companies, focused on filling the pipeline at Genentech. I'm curious about your thoughts on innovating through partnership like that versus innovating directly at small companies or large companies. Is it impossible for large companies to innovate internally? Do they have to rely on external biz dev to grow? Such a great question. I mean, the, the way you asked it, I think that when you're building small companies, and, and my view is definitely shaped by the consumer health space, I think building small companies, you get to a certain place where business development activities and collaborating with small companies is going to be critical to get to scale and get to you know, full realization and maximizing you know, the potential. So you mentioned companies like Hims and Hers and others um, that are primarily focused on a digital commercialization. But I think like other companies that have been in that space, they're eventually gonna need to have a presence in um, retail and in the bricks and mortar space, you know, this so-called omni-channel approach. And that's where I think large, you know, large companies come in, in that, in that synergy and that ecosystem with, with small companies. The other part of your question is, is it impossible for, for large companies to innovate? I think where, you know, where I've found the best examples of synergy is where there's very clear understanding and realization of what a large company does well, even if it's on the, you know, biology, drug discovery, drug development side, but when partnered with small companies that have very specific or distinct capabilities, there's, you know, there's, there's synergy there. And, and that's certainly where we tried to focus at Genentech and where we try to focus now um, in my role at, at Johnson & Johnson Innovation. Was this Genentech pre-Roche? Um, uh, it was, yeah. I left. Um, so they didn't have the like middle. Roche Diagnostics or any of that, right? Well, was... Roche Diagnostics was a partner of Genentech in certain respects, okay. but it was it was pre um, privatization, as we called it back then. Okay. I ended up developing a, a couple of relationships with companies Roche would later on end up acquiring as part of wow. their diagnostic portfolio. So Genentech uh, led you to that fateful breakfast with Linda Avey. And when you look back on that investment that you made those many years ago in 23andMe, I'm curious, did the company's plan play out the way you expected? I mean, I look at, look at them now question. and I think they're basically a drug R&D pipeline company now, even though they have a clear consumer sort of front end to feed that. What do you think about what they've evolved to be? Yeah, well, I mean, in some ways, 
the, this is not the lawyer answer. It, it's not meant to toe the line. In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. I mean, I think the 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 no part of it is that the old adage of it always takes longer and costs a whole lot more. And I don't think they um, in in at ground zero anticipated the amount of money that would need to be raised um, to build that engine and to. Um, you know, to get to the level of, of scale. Um, the, the yes part is that they had really significant vision to, you know, want to change not only um, how people think about their own, um, their own biology and their own genetics and, and how that impacts or doesn't impact their health, but also how drugs are developed. And so I think there have been some really significant milestones along the way, not the least of which is um, developing a drug discovery arm and recruiting some really top tier uh, leaders to, to take that charge and um, bringing things in, licensing things out. I, th I think there's still some chapters that are, that are unwritten. Do these consumer companies in the end all have to build drug discovery, you know, data sharing pipelines in order to be successful, create high value. I just look at, think about all of the different consumer digital companies, for instance, and they're not that many that have been, you know, particularly successful that are not just more fitness companies. Um, yeah, it, it is a question. Well, and, ancestry isn't like a, you know, like you look at a company, like, I guess a big competitor of 23 in the ancestry, right? I don't actually know them well enough, but it would be curious to know to your point, I don't think that they're pivoting the drug development. I don't know if they're monetizing their data. It, it's something that where my radar grows up, if it does feel like they're, if these consumer companies are headed in that direction, um, because it is obviously a really long road and it doesn't necessarily celebrate the capabilities that brought the company together in the first place. I and mean, it's a very right. different proposition to start developing drugs and you made the transition after Genentech Physic Ventures, which was a pretty unusual venture fund, especially in its moment in the early 2000s timeframe, was partnered with Unilever as primary investors, a consumer products company. You were there making consumer focused investments, sort of coming away from the biotech focus, as I recall, right? And um, that's when I met you, Lisa. That's when I met you, I know. And um, I remember thinking that. Um, <laughs> you were doing the more glamorous type of healthcare investing. But I, I wonder about that. I mean, it was like, seems like now, as I look back on it, was it, was it possible to make a good consumer healthcare investment then, or was it ahead of its time? Or, or what do you think about that experience? I think it was all of the above. I think that we made some great investments. I think the challenge that we often faced was that these companies do often take longer and cost more. And we didn't have the, syndicates that had come to the same realization that we had about the, the importance of the consumer health market. And so um, different than today, I think syndicating and finding like-minded co-investors was more of a challenge back then. It wasn't impossible, but it was more of a challenge. Yeah. And, and I think there's, we had a, a, an effort that was really focused on finding science-based, evidence-based approaches and for, for consumer companies that didn't have the sufficient capital to really bear out those studies. You know, I think about like the probiotic space, um, which really lacks a lot of evidence, 
but nonetheless, like empirically used um, significantly in a lot of different But it's a real challenge. I'd be kind of interested in how you think about it. I mean, I kind of feel like companies in a way need to consider to what extent do they want to say, okay, we're going to be on the level of like FDA approved devices and all that stuff versus like F that, like, you know, we'll be like, you know, Fitbit and just sort of, you know, adopted by everyone and just not you know, deal with any of that stuff yeah. um, and, and just have people love us, but kind of have like a lower competitive bar. Yeah, I would say, so, I mean, just to like generalize and put all apples and oranges in the same bucket, like probiotic companies and consumer medical device companies and that, that wrestle with that decision, I think over, over the last, call it 10 years or so, probably 80% of the companies come to the conclusion that they're going to go the way of reaching out to consumers first and gathering data and then deciding what, you know, based on consumer feedback, what the proposition is that they can take, you know, through the FDA Um, and only a subsection, you know, sub um, portion of them actually get there versus the much smaller um, cadre of companies that, take the high bar experiment or do the high bar experiment first and then go the FDA route um, out of the gate and, and then develop you know, a broader offering on, on that basis. So now you're at J&J leading the Western US, Australia and New Zealand innovation activities, which is clear that you draw the long straw to get those uh, sites. Back at a big company. So you've worked at a small company, startup, a big company, in pharma, now J&J, which is a mixed, you know, pharma, device, consumer, big, big company, a law firm, a venture firm. Where do you fit? So I, I actually think about the path that I've followed as just one seamless journey. And I, I haven't thought about this as like, oh, I'm going to be doing something that's so different. Um, and I guess the way that I that I describe where I fit is I feel like a bit of a translator mm. um, in this bilingual world of large global healthcare companies and entrepreneurs. You know, large large companies like J and J and and so many others um, don't have that muscle of and realization and empathy always for what it takes to be an entrepreneur and to make decisions quickly and to have, you know, finite amounts of capital and to be able to take an idea and just run with it. And by the same token, entrepreneurs don't always realize the impact of having a global brand and reputation to protect and the scale that's needed to bring a solution to market um, globally. And the fact that while the budgets might be larger, they're not infinite um, either. So I do end up um, kind of leveraging the, all the experience working with entrepreneurs to build their companies and, and um, from the VC side, as well as the, the notion of, of representing a large company that very much is seeking uh, terrific science and innovation from the outside. So I, I feel like it fits really well. Well, you know, it's funny because I know that there also is another kind of company that you've worked at, which is you had your own catering company. You yourself was an entrepreneur, were an entrepreneur that you, for eight years, ran a catering company kind of off the side of your desk while you were at Genentech. 
Uh, so you were basically executive by day and service person on the weekends. And and I'm wondering Crazy to think about spare time in that way. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I'm wondering about the differences. I mean, I think about all the essential service workers now, you know, um, how did you get treated differently? What was different about working on the sort of the corporate, you know, big shot side versus working in the catering business? I think, I think it's, it's really interesting to have that bird's eye view of, you know, being in a, in the service world, in the, you know, in a kitchen, um, essentially like, yeah, ser serving people, how you get treated. I think people people treat you differently and then when you open up a, a window into you know I a conversation just... uh you know a, a political conversation or you know whatever it is and people kind of step back and um yeah they just it's it's a little bit of how you get treated and as a i guess as a sociology major way back at penn it was fascinating for me to observe that um you know to to be able to to see how different circles collide and, and um, how, how I was treated. What, what motivated you to start a catering? I just have to ask to start a catering company. And what was your, well, niche? I've, I've always been highly, highly um, interested in, in cooking, you know, so, so much of what our passions are, are influenced by, the, the models of, of leadership and things that happened as we, as, a, as we were children. And, you know, growing up in my teeny town in New Hampshire, my parents had a garden and we cooked dinner together every night. It was very collaborative. My grandfather was a very, I call him a very fussy cooker. He was, he was very, very particular and precise about things that he made. And I just thought that that was um, what a, what a, what a blessing to be able to have the time that, to take the time to make things really precise. And if there's anything that requires precision um, that is catering, like things don't just have to taste good, but they have to look really good. Mm -hmm. And so it, it actually happened a bit, um, it happened a bit over time. So word of mouth, like, oh, I'm having a baby shower. It's like, oh, well, do you want me to like cook for it? And then that became, huh. you know, the next thing and the next thing. And then, um, I mean, so much is serendipity. So I, I was shopping one day and uh, just met someone at a store who happened to be a private chef. And we hit it off, became friends. And he, I still see him at the farmer's market uh, every Sunday. Wow. Uh, he said, I have a party that I can't do next Sunday. Do you want to cater it? And it was a dinner party up in Marin. And then we just ended up collaborating um, where if he had some overflow, I would do it. I did some gallery openings. I did private dinner parties. Um, I did a 75th um, birthday party. So, it, you know, it was, it was like maybe a dozen events a year. So and it was a great- came, So if somebody asked you to cook today, what would be the thing you would get? What's your go-to best meal? What, what would you make? Well, it depends on what season it is. Um, I've been, come on now. So last <laughs> Friday, I made um, fesenjim, which is a Persian um, chicken, pomegranate, and walnut dish. Um, it's Sounds good. Yeah, it's really good. It's really <laughs> good. And I like I like things that sort of start out in one thing and then they change over time when you cook them. And so fesenjim is a really interesting example of that because it starts out with like 
pomegranate juice and these roasted walnuts. And then by the time it's finished cooking, it looks like mole. It's like Start really, to, really dark. Start that is and, one thing and changes over time. Sounds like a perfect way to end for you, Stacey. <laughs> but it all fits together. It all fits together and tastes delicious, right? It is such a pleasure to talk to you. I, um, I love Awesome. I love hearing your backstory. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I love your questions and I love being a part of the institution that you've created with Tectonics. Thanks for being on the show today. That was so interesting, uh, Lisa, to hear her whole story from catering to 23andMe to law uh, to New Hampshire. Everything about it was so interesting. It, she's really a just in, like she was saying, she, I mean, sounds like in her, in her cooking, in her life and her career, she's just integrated so many things in a, in a delicious fashion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. She was worried she wouldn't have enough uh, interesting things to talk about, but I think Stacy's a, a particularly, um, it looks like she managed yeah, and, um, has so much to her character and her experience that, uh, she's a real, such a, a role, decent role person too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's always, it's always so grounding to talk to her. Well, with that, you can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech at the Timmerman Report. And please remember to give us a review on iTunes if you like the show. You can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech at the Timmerman Report, and also read him in Bulwark and the Wall Street Journal. Remember to give us a review on the podcast app if you like the show. You can follow the inimitable Lisa Sunin's writings at VentureValkyrie.com. We are grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. Take care. Be well.